Well, good morning, Southside Church. How are y'all doing today? Today we're going to be in Psalm 24. And if you notice, we actually had an opportunity to sing that this morning. And so it should be uh, quite familiar to us. Um, my name is Jason Koloski. Uh, my wife and I have been members here at Southside Church for a little over a year now. And it is an honor to bring the word of God to you all. So we will be in Psalm 24, and when you have found your place, uh, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Psalm 24, the Psalm of David, starting in verse 1. The earth is the Lord's. And the fullness thereof, the world and all who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? King of glory, we ask that you would move mightily among us, that you would warm cold hearts and resurrect dead ones. We pray that you would eliminate all distractions and give us a clear vision of your majesty. And we pray that you, Father, would not leave us unchanged today. In the everlasting name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Suppose you and your family were invited to see, or to, um, to see the Queen of England, to, to go to England and, and get to see the royal palace. Do you just fly to England and take the next taxi and go to the guards and demand entrance? I don't think so, right? I mean, we're, we're talking about royalty here. You don't just walk in and wave and say, hey, Liz, love the dress, right? There are rules. Um, there are, are protocols and etiquette, etiquette um, when talking and meeting royalty. You know, we should address the queen with your majesty first, and then we say, ma'am, um, you, you never start off a conversation, but you always let her take the lead. And above all, one of the number one rules is you never touch 
the Queen. In 1992, the Australian Prime Minister at the time, his name was Paul Keating, he forgot this rule, and he put his arm around the Queen when he met her, and the people and the media went viral for such a transgression. But, but if such a, a protocol is called for when meeting a human queen, how much more when we meet the king who is the king of kings? We can't just choose to worship God any way that we want to. And this is the question of Psalm 24, is what does right worship look like? How should we approach our God? He is the creator God, right? His, his very essence is holiness. So if you're taking notes, this is a good place to start. The, the main question here in Psalm 24 is what does it look like to worship God rightly? What does it look like to worship God rightly? And when, when I say the word worship, I don't mean just what we do here on a Sunday morning. I mean what we do every day in our worship when we acknowledge him. And the psalm is going to answer our question in three ways this morning. We must recognize God's power. We must recognize God's purity. And we must recognize God's presence. So let's begin with the first point in verses 1 and 2 that teach us to recognize God's power. So our psalm begins with saying that the earth belongs to the Lord. Now we are often tempted to think that, that the heavens are God's domain and he kind of lets us rule here on earth. You know, maybe with his help or so. But this is not the picture that David gives us. He says the earth belongs to God. And not just the earth. If you look at verse 1, it says the fullness of the earth. That is, he owns the richness of the earth. He, he owns everything that adorns the earth to make it beautiful. The fruit of the trees, the, the animals that roam its land, the trees that dot the mountaintops, all the coral of the sea belong to God. And even in the New Testament, we get the Apostle Paul who's going to quote this verse exactly to the Corinthians. Um, in Corinth, it's a, it's a viral, it's a pagan city, and they offer just all their food to false gods and to, to false idols. And, and the Christians there are wondering, can we eat this food that has been offered to other gods? And you know how, how Paul answers the question? He says, eat, eat whatever you want. The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. You see, God's possession of the earth is not challenged when people ignorantly dedicate it to other things. He owns the very land that every mosque in the world is built on. He owns the throne of every country, whether they recognize him or not. So even when we are so boastful to claim that this is my house, or, or this is my money, or even in our culture, this is my body. It never, never does it do away with the fact that you first and foremost belong to God. 
And at the end of verse 1, David gets a little more specific. It says that he possesses all who dwell therein. And there he's talking about us. But not just Christians, he's talking about everyone. That, that we don't own ourselves. That our bodies and souls do not belong to our possession. That, that we belong to God in whole. There is a requirement among all men and women that worship belongs to God and God alone. And, and he doesn't own us because he's some victor in a cosmic battle of gods like the ancient mythologies. Rather, he owns the earth and he owns us because he created us. He created it and founded it upon the waters and gave it its rivers, says verse 2. The earth is the indisputable title of God. And so here's what David is trying to teach us. That in our worship of God, we must recognize who we're worshiping. This is the transcendent God who brought forth the earth out of nothing. It's the God who fashions the world and who feeds it every day and every hour. This is the one who said to Job, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Job, where were you when I told the seas thus far and no further? This is the God who delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt. The God who split the Red Seas to its depths. Who dried the Jordan River and whose word goes forth and never returns void. And so in our worship of God, how do you approach him? Do you have a feeble conception of God? If he is the giver of all life, do you trust him with your life? Do you trust him with your children's life? If he is the sustainer of all things, do you trust that he can provide for you? If he is the great creator, do you believe that he can create a new heart and give you new desires? Do you believe that he can help you forgive the unforgivable? That you can forgive even your most heinous enemies? See, one of the root problems in the Christian life is that we don't believe that God is mighty. That he really is the superintendent of the world. The reason we lack great experiences in the Christian life is not because God is weak, but because we struggle to believe that he's strong. If you want to experience the great king that our Bible talks about, if you want a mighty move of God in your life, then you must begin to walk in the promises of God. William Carey, the, the great missionary to India, said it this way. We must both expect great things from God and attempt great things from God. There is both belief and there is both action. There is both trust and obedience. So if we're not really willing to obey God, are we really trusting him? Do we really believe he's mighty if, we, if our lives aren't portraying that reality? You see, Christianity is not about coming here to Southside or whatever church every Sunday. 
That's not what we were created to do. God is not, is not pleased with that type of life. You were created for something more. You were created to imitate the king, the, the God of our salvation. You were created to be his ambassador to a foreign world, to live a radical life that makes people question what God you serve. So if we're going to worship God the way he intends for us to worship him, then we must understand that he's powerful. And we must begin to walk in a life of obedience in light of that. So let's trust God today. Let's put uh, feet to our faith. And let's show the world the God that we worship. Now we're going to move to verse 3 and consider our second main point, And that is we must recognize God's purity. You see, the, the fact that we serve a powerful God... Uh, a mighty God, it, it sounds like a really good thing. Uh, you know, a strong God who created the world, a God who sustains every living creature, but what sounds so good actually ends up to be a major problem. You see, David asked the question in verse 3, who has the right to stand before this God? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Who dares climb the mountain of God and stand in his presence? When Isaiah, when he receives a vision from God, he saw the heavenly temple of the Lord and all the angels were singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah stands there and he's awestruck. And the only thing he can say is, woe is me. I am a man of unclean question of who can stand before God is one of the greatest questions of the human soul. It has plagued every generation, every culture, and every religion in the world. There are, are some people, like the ancient monks of Christianity, or even the monks of other religions that have hid themselves from the Lord, um, hid themselves from, from the sin and the dirtiness and corruption of the earth hoping that they would be more presentable to God. Many ancient cults and religions have practiced self-harm where they would cut themselves and inflict bodily harm. Um, some of them would even swing hooks into their backs thinking that they could somehow merit their way into heaven, that they could gain the attention of the gods. This is what... Elijah talks about when the prophets of Baal, when they cut themselves and so blood gushed out on them, he says. In Islam, your, your life revolves around doing more good things than bad things, hoping that God will let you in if the scales are in your favor. But don't think this question is far from you either. How often do we 
try to buy our way into the presence of the king. Maybe the king will let me into his presence if I attend church every Sunday and serve in some ministry. Maybe if I'm kind to other people. Maybe if my good works outweigh my bad works like in Islam. Maybe if I'm just an honest person, that somehow he'll let me into heaven. But David answers the question in a way that we probably wouldn't answer it. And pick up your Bibles with me. We're going to look at verse 4 here. And this is how David answers this monumental question. He says this, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift his soul to what is false, and who does not swear deceitfully. Can anyone actually achieve this standard? Would you stand in the presence of God and would you dare show him your clean hands and pure heart? Can you say that you've always upheld the truth in your life? But, but this is God's standard of purity, right? This is his holy requirement. The fundamental divide between God and man is a problem of purity above all else. It is a problem of holiness. You see, notice how David doesn't answer the question. He doesn't say only if you are a Jew, you can enter into God's presence. He doesn't say you have to be this race or this gender. The fundamental problem is our character. It's, it's a lack of purity in our heart. We have dirty hands. And, and David is in the same boat, right? I mean, we're talking about the adulterous King David. He, he's the murderer of his loyal army. The one who God said to him, David, your hands are too bloody. I will not allow you to build a house for me. So the question arises, how can this unrighteous David go in the presence of God? And here's the answer. That David could not stand before God because of his own merit. Not because he met God's standard of purity, but because God met the standard on his behalf. You see, David is looking at the God who had delivered the Israelites from Egypt, who led them in a cloud of fire through the dangerous wilderness, the God who dwelled with them in the tabernacle, the God who gave them victory in the promised land. You see, God has made the first move. He gave them the sacrificial system so that their sins may be washed and forgiven. So David doesn't think for a second that he met these requirements. But he believed and rejoiced in the grace and mercy of God that he covered David's lack of obedience. So David recognizes he cannot stand before God. He recognizes he cannot fulfill the law's demands and so what does he do? What's his response? Is he responds in humility. And we can, we can kind of liken this, if it's kind of hard to think about, of that, that once-in-a-life opportunity that you've gotten sometime in your life that was given to you even though you didn't deserve it, right? You were just so utterly disqualified for some job or for something. It's like you know, men who have you know, spouses that are just way out of your league, right, like my spouse. You're like, there's no way, absolutely no way that I deserve this person. 
But we respond in great humility that we have been considered for this. And this is, this is the same thing with David. And this is confirmed in, my, in our Bibles in verses 5 through 6. So if you read it with me, David says, in asking the question, and he says, we have a pure heart. And he says, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him. You see, these, these verses are assuming that those who seek the face of God have in, in some way met this blameless requirement. Faithful Israel believed that they could worship God in his presence. But God doesn't bless his people because they've met the requirement, but because he is graciously acted on his behalf. And so I want to make sure that's clear. Um, and, and there's a great deal we can learn about this in the Christian life. You see, there is a, an incredible dichotomy in the Christian soul that in a, in a very real sense that we are sinners. And in a very real sense that we have the righteousness of Christ. And the paradox is clear. How can I be both a sinner and a saint? How is it possible that I am covered by the righteousness of the eternal Son of God, yet have the filthiness of an unrighteous beggar? And this is what often drives me nuts about our faith, is that every time I sin, I'm reminded of the righteousness of somebody else. When, when I wander away from God, when I lust after the pleasures of this world, when uh, my eyes linger too long on somebody who's not my spouse, when I feel guilt for not sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with my neighbor, that's frustrating. Because every time that happens, I'm confronted with my frailty and I'm confronted with the righteousness of my Savior. And the question, the question that comes to my mind, and maybe yours, is God, are you, are you sure? Did you, did you really pick me? Is this some mistake? Do you know how dirty my hands are? Do you really know how hard my heart really is? Do you know how often I spurn your name? And this is the story of David. Church, we are in good company. I can't help to think that when David is writing this psalm, and he, he asks the question, who is worthy to stand before God? And he begins to write, those with a pure hands a pure heart and clean hands, that he's immediately taken up with his sin. The very hands that touched Bathsheba, how can that be pure hands, God? The very hands that murdered so many men. Did David really believe that? 
I mean, this is what drove the Apostle Paul insane, so frustrated with his lack of disobedience, or a lack of obedience, so frustrated that he, he couldn't just motivate himself to, himself to do the things that he wanted, but he said, he, I can only do the things that I hate, and you know what he says? Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? saved by clean hands and a pure heart. The king does not look at us and say, oh, he's worthy. No, he looks at our nakedness. He looks at all of our sin. He sees the stains on our hands. He smells the filth of our bodies, the darkness that emits from the depths of our hearts. And you know what he says to us? says, mine. He says, I'll take your bread. He says, I'll be your father. He says, I'll rescue you from the slavery of your sin and make you kings and make you queens. In the gospel, we get Jesus saying to us, I'll give you my hands. I'll give you my pure heart. Here is my bridled tongue. Here is my righteousness. And he wraps us in pure white robes. And he binds our broken hearts. He strengthens our limp hands and our feeble knees. And he walks us down the grand corridors of heaven into the great throne room of God. And he sits us. He sits us next to the throne of the Father, and he says, there with me. He says, they're here with me. I purchased them with my blood, and they have my righteousness. And that's the message of Christianity for the world. But just because we have this great salvation doesn't mean we don't pay careful attention to our obedience. David has just asked a monumental question of who is worthy. And the answer is just as important. I mean, this is the answer to the question of questions. What must I do to be saved? This is the answer to the question. And so it demands our contemplation. And we don't have the time to go through it all. But I want to focus on what it is have a pure heart. Um, and so I, I want to ask um, you guys, and I want to ask myself um, some questions, and, and these are just to elicit um, thoughts in mind, whether or not your heart is pure or where you could do some work. And the first question is this, is your heart ignorant of sin? Is your heart ignorant of sin? This is to leave sin in your heart unchecked. This is the person who doesn't contemplate their deep motivations in life, who does not look within themselves and ask, why am I finding refuge in somewhere other than God? This heart asks, why do I obsess over my appearances? This is the heart that asks, why do I really gossip about other people? Like, wh what's my motivation, heart, 
And the second question is, do you indulge in sin? Do you let sin run its course? Or do you stop it as soon as it rises in the heart? You know, this is the heart that doesn't rebuke itself for the first time when it looks at a man or woman lustfully. This is the heart that says, I'm going to let my anger burn against somebody. And until God gives me the time or whatever I need to forgive that person, right? I mean, is that what Jesus did for us? Did he say, oh, I'm just going to wait until their sin runs out. I'm going I'm to wait until they stop making me angry with their sin. Is that the kindness of our Savior? Do you let your heart come under inspection by God? Do you allow him into your heart? Do you invite him? Is there a room in your heart that you have not let God in? Is there something that you're, that you're holding on to that you say, I'll give you everything else, but God, just give me this one thing. These are the signs of an impure heart. So we have seen the purity that God requires of us. And now we look to see our last main point, and that's to consider God's presence among his people. And here we're looking at verses 7 through 10, and I want to, to read a couple of them with you again. If you look in your Bibles at verse 7, <clears throat> it begins like this. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory, verse 8? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Verses 7 through 10 depict an ancient practice, particularly in the ancient Near East, but it's not too far from us either. You see, in, in a time before our own, kings and princes would go out to war with their people. It would be like as, as if our president would go out to war with his soldiers. It kind of seems kind of odd in our minds today, but this was the practice back then. And if they were successful, they would come back to their city with tons of spoils, and as they reached the city, the men at the front of the formation would call out to the city gates and say, open the gates that the king may come in. And then the, the guards of the city would often reply back with something like, who is this king, right? Who are you that you're demanding entrance into this city? And the soldiers at the front of the formation would say something like, this is the victorious king. And so this is what this psalm is talking about. But since the early church, and we're talking about like 200, 300 AD, the early church has viewed this psalm as a messianic psalm. And that means that they saw Jesus all over the place in this psalm. From the question of who is worthy to stand before the hill of the Lord, to the, the language of the great king, to the language of pure hearts, from, from Jesus, they, they saw Jesus on Palm Sunday when he would enter into Jerusalem and, and all the people from the city would lay palm branches down and they would sing Hosanna. They saw Jesus everywhere. And even we see the incarnation. You see, verses 3 and 6, they talk about us ascending the hill of the Lord, right? Us going into God's presence. But 7 through 10 talk about the king descending to his people. 
We see the king is moving towards us. From heaven, God has looked down and he saw our helplessness and he saw the frailty in our sin. And his deepest and most natural impulse when he sees us is to move towards sin and suffering in the person of his son. That he moves so closely that he takes on a body just like ours. He takes on the rejection of his creation. He faces the humility of the cross. He bears the sin and shame and he redeems us so that we can live in his presence. And because God has moved towards us, we can move towards him. The Bible calls us to draw near to God, to abide in his presence, to take up our cross, to share in the sufferings of our Savior, and to become like him in his death. That's to to cast off the pleasures of this world for the greater pleasures of heaven. To become dissatisfied with earthly comforts for the comforts of a loving father. To stop laboring for a name to make ourselves in and to accept the name that the king has given us. But we not only see the shadows of the incarnation, we see the shadows of the ascension of Jesus into heaven. You see, after the resurrection of Jesus, he ascended into heaven as the great king who conquered sin and death. And for the first time, for the first time in all of history, a man ascends into heaven. And as I imagine it, Jesus, he stands before all of heaven. And he cries out in a loud voice, lift Your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And the guardians of heaven reply, who is this king of glory? And Jesus says, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. And Jesus triumphantly walks through the gates of heaven, not by the merit of any other man but himself. With clean hands and a pure heart, he ascends the hill of the Lord. And without asking, he goes straight to the throne of the Father. And he sits down and he looks at God and he says, it is finished. And God looks back at him says it is finished indeed for the first time in all of history the way has been opened from heaven to earth the eternal gates of heaven have been lifted eternally if you try to enter by your own merit you will be rejected. If you try to enter by any other name besides from Jesus, you will be cast out. But if you have come, if you have come to know this king of glory, if you have come to know him and walk in his ways, then he bids you to come and dwell with him. Would you pray with me?